Let's turn in the scriptures to Mark chapter 15. That's where we're going to be studying this morning, Mark 15. This is the gospel according to Mark. A gospel, according to scripture, is a regal announcement. It's an announcement from a king. And the gospel of Mark is the regal announcement that Jesus of Nazareth is God become man. He was chosen and anointed by God to reign forever on earth as king. He was crucified for sinners and then he bodily rose from the dead three days later to prove that he has authority over death. He has authority to give life to whomever he wishes. The New Testament begins with four accounts of the gospel, that regal announcement about who Jesus is and what he's done. Those four gospel accounts are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's been said that those four gospels are the four-chambered heart of the Bible. In other words, Jesus himself is at the center of the Bible. Jesus is at the heart of the Bible. The Old Testament anticipated him for thousands of years. And then the New Testament explains who he is, what he did, and what it means to follow him. For a few months, we've been studying this gospel, and we're just about to finish. Next week will be the final sermon in chapter 16. And then, as I mentioned earlier, on December 11th, we have the special privilege of having Lonnie Polson, who's memorized the entire gospel according to Mark, and will dramatically present chapters 1 through 16 to us. Looking forward to that. Please mark your calendars and, and be sure to be here. Today, we read about the final stage in Jesus' trial. It's the stage, the Roman stage, the trial before Pilate. And then we read about his crucifixion, his death, and his burial. We actually pick up reading on Friday morning. Thursday night late, the Jewish trial had ended. They had accused Jesus of blasphemy. And now we pick up beginning of Mark 15. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You've said so. The chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. 
So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour, it's the middle of the morning, when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to each other, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour, it's about noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Elwe, Elwe, lama sabachthani! Which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah really will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, that means basically he was like a closet follower of Jesus, he took courage 
And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. He summoned the centurion and asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud. And taking him down, he wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out from the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. What is the main point of this chapter? I wonder if you picked it up as we read through. There is a primary burden that Mark is highlighting by using a phrase over and over and over again. He uses the phrase, the king of the Jews, six times. Now, before I work through those uses of the phrase, I actually want to explain that when the, when the phrase king of the Jews is used the first time in verse 3, and Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? It's clear that this is the formal legal accusation against Jesus. And that's actually strange, because when we finished chapter 14, we would have thought that the Jewish trial ended with an accusation of blasphemy. Jesus, at the end of chapter 14, in verse 64, was accused of committing blasphemy. So why, when he gets to Pilate, is the formal accusation, are you the king of the Jews? It's because the Jews had no right to execute a criminal. They could recommend a criminal to the Roman government to be executed, but in that situation, the accusation of blasphemy wouldn't have gotten very far. Rome didn't really care about blasphemy. What Rome did care about was sedition, treason, insurrection. And so the Jews shrewdly accused Jesus of blasphemy in their own court, and then they switch the accusation when they get to Pilate, and they say, this man is claiming to be king of the Jews. And if you claim to be a king of the Jews in Israel, a Roman colony in that day, you're going to be guilty of insurrection, treason, right? The Roman government wouldn't care about blasphemy. They would care about treason. And so the formal accusation, this is the king of the Jews, is what Pilate has to deal with. When the chapter opens, it is assumed that this is the charge against him. And that's why then, the first of six references in verse 3, Pilate asked Jesus directly, are you the king of the Jews? I don't know if you want to underline it in your Bible, but you're going to see it six times throughout this chapter. King of the Jews. Interestingly, Jesus did not defend himself. He simply said, you say so. That is ambiguous. You get a little bit more detail of his response in John 18. But here, Jesus simply didn't deny it. He didn't try to explain it. He didn't try to defend himself. And Pilate's amazed. In verse 9, Pilate asks the Jewish crowd mockingly, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? 
And the crowd asked, not for Jesus, but for the release of Barabbas. The third occurrence comes in verse 12. Pilate asked, Then what do you want me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Again, he's mocking them. They shouted, crucify him. So Pilate has Jesus scourged and the soldiers mock him as if he's a king. A fake king. A mock king. The fourth instance happens in verse 18. After putting on him a mock robe and crown, they bow before him and they jokingly shout, Hail, King of the Jews. That's the fourth occurrence. According to verse 26, the formal charge for which he's crucified is inscribed at the top of his cross and it reads, The King of the Jews. And as he's crucified, the sixth occurrence is in verse 32. The watching crowd reviles him, saying, Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we might see him and believe. You see what Mark is emphasizing? I want to go through one more development and then I'm going to crystallize it. Okay? The climax of this chapter is in verse 39. Mark 15, 39. A Roman centurion has observed all of the unusual features of this crucifixion. He's witnessed Jesus silently and during mockery. He's witnessed the Godward cries of Jesus. He's witnessed the three hours of darkness. This Roman centurion has probably witnessed dozens, maybe hundreds of crucifixions like this. And he is convinced this is a, a, a criminal like I've never seen. This is, this is a circumstance that I've never encountered before. This is no ordinary man. After all, when he is, is looking at the darkness and when he's looking at the death of Jesus, he shouts out, this man was the Son of God. Now, the Son of God is a title for Israel's king. It's also a title that in, indicates that Jesus is related to God in a unique way. He is the Son of God, or we might say he is God the Son, eternally existing with God the Father and God the Spirit. I'm not sure. I think it's unlikely that the Roman centurion understood this. I think he's probably saying something like, this man was a superhuman. This man is a, a human like I've never seen before. But Mark understands when this centurion shouts out, truly this man was the son of God. He was saying more than he realized. Mark understands the significance of the confession. So I think now we can, we can summarize, we can crystallize Mark's main point in chapter 15. Jesus was crucified because he was God's son and Israel's king. Jesus was crucified because he was God's son and Israel's king. You have to see the irony. Do you see the irony? The Jews accuse him of blasphemy. They sentence him to death for claiming to be Israel's king, the son of the blessed in chapter 14. The Romans crucified Jesus for insurrection because apparently he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Here's the irony. Their accusations could not have been more true. 
what they thought to be accusations were perfect descriptions. Their accusations were perfect descriptions. The one they were crucifying was in fact the king. And he was being crucified because he was God's chosen king. He was the king who could conquer sin and death for all who would submit to his rule. The irony is that everyone was speaking better than they realized. The criminal accusations were perfect declarations of the truth. Jesus was being crucified because he was God's son and Israel's king. In the rest of our time together, I want to work out three applications of this. All right, the first is this. They're going to work through the text in its major developments. From the first 15 verses, I want us to realize that Jesus, our king, heroically modeled for us how to endure injustice. Jesus, your king, heroically modeled for you how to endure injustice. Mark doesn't share many details of the trial, not nearly as many as the other three gospel accounts do. He provides a very short summary, but there's no doubt why he shared the details he shared. He shares it not simply because it's historical, but because he considers Jesus to be heroic. He considers Jesus to be an example of how to endure trial. It's interesting, many of Mark's original readers in Rome would, as Jesus predicted just two chapters earlier, they would be, quote, delivered over to courts and stand trial before governors. For all those who followed Jesus and would experience injustice, they would experience unjust suffering, Mark depicts Jesus' heroic endurance through this sham trial that led to his crucifixion. See, we have to realize that it was part of God's good plan for Jesus to experience injustice. That's really hard for us. It is part of God's good plan for us to sometimes experience injustice. And it is so hard. We hate injustice, and yet it is sometimes part of God's good plan for us, just like it was God's good plan for Jesus to experience injustice. As Americans, we're wired to fight injustice. We're not really good at enduring it, and no one is by nature. In verses 1 through 15, Mark details Jesus' exemplary behavior in this trial that is unjust. And the most shocking aspect of his example is, according to verse 5, silence. From the time Jesus is arrested until the time that he is crucified, the Bible records him saying two things, and this is one of them. It's as you say. Jesus was silent. This made Pilate marvel Isaiah had recounted 700 years earlier that he would open not his mouth. Or Mark's co-worker Peter, here in Rome, Peter in his first letter would put it in a little bit of a different way. He said to suffering Christians, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't let threats come out of his mouth. But he simply continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. 
He knew that God was going to deal with things in time. Jesus was silent. And we who follow Jesus should expect injustice. And we do not need to let bitterness eat away at us. We can trust that injustices that we experience are somehow part of God's good plan. And we can endure it. I'm not saying you never speak up. The New Testament occasionally has instances where people speak up and, 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 and ask for their rights to be granted. But Jesus provides us a powerful example of silent endurance of injustice. He's a hero. He's an example. The second facet is in verses 16 to 39. In Jesus' crucifixion, he, our king, graciously endured the worst suffering in our place. In his crucifixion, Jesus, your king, graciously endured the worst suffering in your place. The crowd shouted for his crucifixion, and Pilate and the Roman soldiers made it happen. Crucifixion was the most humiliating form of execution that the Romans knew, and they were really experienced at carrying it out. I want to walk through just seven facets of the suffering that Mark describes in verses 16 through 39. The first actually comes at the beginning. It's his scourging. His suffering involves scourging. Scourging involves being whipped with leather straps that are woven with shards of metal and glass. Many times those who were scourged were left with their bones visible, their internal organs visible. Many died as a result of the scourging before they were ever crucified. In first century Israel, the historian Josephus recounts several such scourgings in graphic detail. Jesus, your king, suffered scourging for you. His suffering involved mockery. Verses 16 through 20 is where Mark recounts the mockery of Jesus as king. Verse 16 says that the soldiers called together the whole battalion, which may have been 600 men. And these soldiers mocked Jesus as king. They gave him a robe, a crown, a fake bow, and salutes with strikes and spits. Again, what's so sobering is that the one they're mocking is really king. The third facet, his suffering involved weakness. There's a bystander whose name is Simon, and he was forced to carry the top wood beam of the cross because Jesus was too weak to carry it on his own. The fact that Mark describes Simon's background and his children He says he's from Cyrene, which is modern Libya in northern Africa, and his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. It indicates that these men would have been known to Mark's audience. Mark was writing to an audience in Rome. It's interesting that Paul mentions a man, a leader in the church at Rome named Rufus in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. I think it's probably the same guy. Alexander and Rufus were probably part of the church in Rome out of which Peter and Mark were planting more churches. And I think that Mark mentions Simon by name because 
Simon, for the rest of his life, would have considered it an honor to have helped the king carry his cross when he was so weak. Yet the fact that he helped him indicates that Jesus was physically weak and in excruciating pain. And in verse 23, we're told he refused to even take a painkiller. Jesus endured weakness and pain and refused to dull it at all. Fourth, Jesus endured the shame of public nakedness. Verse 24 says that his clothes were taken from him and the soldiers split up the clothes among themselves. Number five, his suffering involved association with criminals. He was crucified between two insurrectionists. Luke describes how one of these criminals eventually repented and Jesus assured him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Mark has a record that's much shorter and it's exclusively focused on the shame of being between them and being reviled by them. Verse 32 records these two criminals. These two criminals mocked Jesus as powerless. What shame. The worst aspect of his suffering is described in verses 33 and 34. His suffering involved abandonment by God. Verse 33 records, around high noon, Jerusalem went black. The next verse explains why. Because Jesus, quoting Psalm 22, cried loudly, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness was signifying the judgment of God that was falling on Jesus even as he exhausted the wrath of God for all who'd trust him. Similar darkness had fallen on Egypt before the Passover. You might remember in Exodus 10. Darkness fell on the land before God's judgment passed through. Some pastors and theologians, even some conservative evangelicals, try to downplay what's happening here. They try to teach that Jesus was just feeling forsaken by God. But if Jesus is clothed in our sins... And as Isaiah says, the punishment that brought us peace was falling on him. Then this wasn't just a mere feeling forsaken. According to the previous chapter, this is Mark 14 verses 35 and 36 that Jim taught last week. This is the hour that Jesus had been most dreading. It was the hour when he was drinking the cup of the wrath of God the Father in the place of all who deserved it. What was happening here in Jerusalem's darkness, we must admit, was a mystery. It is something that we will never fully comprehend. But I think we can certainly affirm that while the triune God didn't implode, it's not like God was separated in his essence, in the essence of his being. The fellowship between God the Father and God the Son, the fellowship that they had experienced for all eternity, was broken darkened as Jesus bore the chastisement for our rebellion. Jesus suffered abandonment by God for us. The seventh and final aspect is in verses 37, 38, and 39. His suffering involved death. Twice, In these final words about the crucifixion, Mark reports that Jesus breathed his last. He breathed his last. He died. 
the king who raised others from the dead, died. The king who never sinned died for sinners. The king who would restore blessings to the whole earth died under the curse of death. Now before I conclude with our third reflection, I just want to state as simply as I know how. Jesus died for you. He died for you. At his crucifixion, God's chosen king, the one who would rule forever on earth, was paying the price to set you free from sin and death. He was paying for your ransom. Jesus died for you. That's why Mark reports there in verse 38 that the temple curtain was torn. It's because anyone who commits his or her life to Jesus can draw near to God. Anyone who will trust Jesus will never again be barred access to God's presence like Adam was thrown out of the garden, right? Do you see that the cross, the cross, the sufferings of Jesus, is both horrifically grotesque and lovely? Jesus died for you. He died the death that we deserved. And you're getting it if you say, How horrible. How wonderful. If you've never committed your life to Jesus, the one who died for you, I urge you to do so right now. The third and final application is your king experienced burial. So Christians need not fear the grave. This is verses 40 to 47 where we're taught that Jesus was buried. And Mark recounts that the burial was witnessed by a few women. Now, in God's plan, these women were poised to become the first witnesses of the resurrection, which is awesome. Jesus was so countercultural in how he valued women. In this era, women were not even allowed to provide in court legitimate testimony. But Jesus values women and they become the heroes of the story while all the disciples are doubters these women would witness the resurrection of jesus but here we're told that they witnessed the burial of jesus now why does that matter for us and i just i end here earlier this may when we were studying a difficult passage in first peter three i mentioned a book by matthew emerson called he descended to the dead, a theology of Holy Saturday. It's a great book. It's about what happened during the three days, Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday morning, when, as he says, Jesus really died a truly human death and really remained dead. Jesus died and was buried. He really died and he remained dead. What happened when Jesus was buried? 
A few years ago, the same author wrote an article on how to preach this historical event. And he explained that we must realize, I have it up here, Jesus has already walked through the valley of the shadow of death and come out victorious on the other side. He says, so what does that mean for us? It means that we can have hope as we cross that final river that Jesus has gone before us. He's defeated the grave and will one day raise our bodies from death's dominion. He says, the descent is, in other words, an incredibly pastoral doctrine, meaning it helps to shepherd people through their real, real needs. He says, Jesus has fully experienced death, just as all of us will unless Jesus returns first in glory. The last enemy, death, has already been defeated. Jesus has taken the full brunt of its sting and in doing so, destroyed its power and its dominion. He's broken down the gates of death's stronghold. Jesus was buried, so anyone who follows him needs not fear burial. Tri-County, our king, the king, endured injustice as an example for us. He suffered the wrath of God and exhausted it so those who follow him never would. And he was buried. I think it's right to say he was buried for us so that we can be assured that when we are buried, he's with us and for us even in that moment. And I pray that as we contemplate Mark 15, our hearts are overwhelmed, are awakened and overwhelmed to wonder, love, and praise. The King died for us. Father, thank you for opening our eyes to the glory of your Son. The crucifixion, we say, how horrible, how wonderful. And I pray, Lord, that you would lead many who are considering the claims of Jesus. Draw many to faith in him. And I pray that for those of us who are believers, you would equip us for loving Jesus, remaining committed to Jesus, enduring suffering like Jesus endured, and also not fearing the grave. Mature us, Lord, through your word and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Amen. Amen.